the Plumley Pod. Episode 41. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today I have Professor Gloria Moss returning. She is, of course, an author of eight books. She has written over 70 peer-reviewed articles, and she's back to tell us about her latest book, which she has co-authored. It is called Lightbulb Moments and the Power of Critical Thinking. Lightbulb Moments and the Power of Critical Thinking. And we'll be telling you where you can find a copy of that without having to hand over your money to evil Amazon very, very shortly. But first of all, Professor Moss, welcome back. And I'm going to dive straight in with why did you write a book about critical thinking and why did you write it now? Well, hi, Sarah. It's lovely to be back. The book had to be written because we're living in times when truth is not always paramount. That's a bit of an understatement, I know. And this book provides the solution, critical thinking. It will revolutionize people's understanding of the power of critical thinking to prize open the truth. And so it will defeat attempts to shut down the truth. It's really quite simple. Critical thinking is the silent weapon that can help us in these critical times. And of course, it's not a new weapon. It's been with us for centuries, going way back to Socrates who, as we know, actually died for his valiant efforts at bringing critical thinking to the Athenian democracy. It's been with us for a very long time, but it's time to revive it and bring it back into the foreground. And what specifically made you decide that? What specifically made us look at critical thinking? It is, according to one account, we're actually living in a pseudo-reality. The reality that most people see, perceive, may not actually be other than a fake reality. And in order to see through this, we have to arm ourselves with this miraculous tool of critical thinking, which, as I say, has been a tool very much in Europe for centuries. So if I, I just sketch in some of the finest minds that have presented us with critical thinking, Going back to Socrates, it was Socrates who said that a life without investigation is not worth living. So wise was he that when he was told by the oracle at Delphi that he was the wisest man in Athens, Socrates balked at that until he realized that, yes, although he knew nothing, he was, unlike his fellow citizens, keenly aware of his own ignorance. Such was his wisdom. And the threat that he represented to the state was enormous. We all know that, according to Plato's accounts, that Socrates used to engage young Athenians with a series of questions, probing questions. This led to his, his death, in fact. We all know that he was sentenced to death for the powerful act that he was engaging in of introducing critical thinking into the populace in Athens. And, of course, there are many people who carried on the tradition after Socrates. Descartes, cogitus ergo sum, man. He said, and it's worth marking his words, 
that if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. Wise words. And Jung, the psychologist, well, here are his words. The ability to ask questions is the greatest resource in learning the truth. This is really why we need to revive it today. And if you're just looking for a really pithy sentence, then you look to Einstein's question everything. I don't really think, Sarah, we could do much better than Einstein's question everything. And in fact, my co-author, Catherine Narmachich, and I, we've had some mugs created with, yes, would you believe it? The power of critical thinking on the mug and below it, Einstein's words question everything. A reminder every minute of the day, if you're a great tea drink, drinker as I am, <laughs> that we mustn't accept anything as given. And would you believe it? Even the BBC's bite-sized learning resources pages state that critical thinking involves questioning rather than simply accepting information that you hear or read. Boom! So, you know, if you want to justify critical thinking, you take your pick. You've got Socrates, Descartes, Jung, Einstein, and the BBC. It's a completely kosher concept. It's about time the BBC took their own advice then, isn't it? And please, you said that. <laughs> Couldn't resist, sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> so it's the silent weapon that we need in these critical times to bring forth the truth. And the book discusses some of the obstacles to exercising critical thinking, of which there are numerous, and I can talk about those today, numerous. And anybody who manages to get through those obstacles unscathed is heroic. And the book actually contains 24 first-person accounts by heroic people describing in the first person their questioning journeys, their personal questioning journeys. And they are rather remarkable accounts, I must say. Contributors include Mark Devlin, John Hamer, UK-based Matthew Ayres in Canada, Sir Julian Rose in Poland, Justin Walker, Catherine Armitage, UK, Neil Kramer over in the US, myself, David Edelman, Chad Mannion, Eve Gilmore, and others. And between them, in their 24 accounts, very readable, I must say, these accounts, they reveal the power of critical thinking to pierce through falsehoods and reveal the truth. And if you look at the range of topics that they focus on, they include money creation. That's Justin Walker. The power of regenerative farming. No justifiable reason for seeking to close down 20% of Holland's farms. All we need is regenerative farming. But there is another backstory, which the book goes into, on the desire to close down 20% of Holland's farms. And that backstory can be found in Catherine Armitage's piece, which focuses on her health journey. And Eve Gilmore also focuses on her health journey. She started as a nurse, but she ended up as a homeopath. Other people talk about education. We've got somebody talking about higher education, somebody else about school education. And, well, I hardly need to tell you, Sarah, how much these have gone off the rails. 
I, I would argue there's no such thing as school education anymore. There's only school indoctrination. Yes. I'm very pessimistic about the prospects of, you know, of education in, in our country. The commentator on university education is Dr. Ursula Edgington, who uh, was a British academic, but she's now moved to New Zealand. And she talks about many no-go areas that are not open to discussion in university education, from toxicology to climate change to best practice leadership. These are no-go areas, amongst many others. And incidentally, if people want to read more about it, then the publisher of this new book on critical thinking, which is Truth University Press, Truth University Press, they've also published a book on higher education, looking at the failures of higher education. And I think you've got that book, haven't you, Sarah? It's called... I've forgotten the title now. Let me just get it here. <laughs> the title of that book is The Dark Side of Academia, How Truth is Suppressed. I have mine right here, Professor Moss. The Dark Side of Academia, How Truth is Suppressed by Truth University Press. And I am almost half the way through and it is brilliant. I've just finished reading about the absolute scandal that is peer-reviewed science, so-called. The peer review system is unbelievably corrupt, way more so than even I thought. And it's a really, really interesting read. I'm very much enjoying that. So available on Amazon, isn't it? For people who want to search it, they can find the dark side of academia there. Yes, but they can also buy it through Truth University Press Direct. Perfect. And you've got the email for that. Yeah, I'll give it now, actually. InfoTruthUniversity at ProtonMail.com. That's InfoTruthUniversity, all one word. Info Truth University at ProtonMail.com. So if you want to avoid giving your money to evil Amazon and the gluttonous Jeff Bezos, then please get your copy through Info Truth University at ProtonMail.com. Great. Thanks very much, Sarah. So we have these 24 contributions. And my own contribution is focused on one of the techniques that we can all use in thinking critically. And it's the technique of spotting anomalies. One of the examples that I provide in my contribution concerns the Great Fire of London. And gosh, going back quite a few years now, I started to look with interest at some of the events that I was reading about back in the 1660s. So if I just randomly tell you some of the events that crossed my page and which caused me to question, they were as follows. In 1661, Wren expressed a strong desire for this spire of the then Gothic St. Paul's Cathedral to be replaced by a dome. That was back in 1661, five years before the Great Fire. And then this really intrigued me. Just four years after that, he went overseas for 10 months. He, yep, he went on a 10-month tour of Paris. Now, that was the one and only time he went overseas in the whole of his long life, and he died at a ripe old age in his 90s. So there he was, yeah, went off to Paris in June 1665, four years after we know that he expressed a desire to replace this spire of St. Paul's Cathedral by a dome. And he returned in March 1666, just a few months before the outbreak of the Great Fire of London. Well, what did he do while he was in Paris? Well, he spent his time looking at street planning in Paris, at churches, at domed churches in particular. And he wrote a letter on his grand tour 
in which he said that he brought back quotes almost all France on paper. And he said that he had daily conferences with the best artists. Interesting, no? Now, fast forward just a couple of months from his return in March 1666. In August of that year, scaffolding was erected for repairs to St. Paul's, and tar, which is highly flammable, was applied to the roof of St. Paul's Cathedral. That was August 1666. And of course, the following month was the month in which the fire broke out, September 1666. It broke out on the 2nd of September. Now, already, this was several decades ago, I was aware of these few facts. And I just thought to myself, it's a little bit strange that this happened in the lead up to the Great Fire, which, of course, gave Wren his big opportunity as an architect. He was asked after the fire to not only rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral, which was burnt to the ground, despite sitting in a gigantic enclosure with no buildings near it and sitting very high up on the hill. It just struck me as rather idiosyncratic, anomalous, if you like. It's reminded me immediately of Grenfell Tower with the cladding and the unnecessary cladding that was flammable. What a strange... Well, they say history doesn't repeat, it rhymes, maybe, maybe not, but I don't know. When you said that about the exceptions, the additions that were made to it very shortly before it burned down, I thought, oh, that's interesting. That sounds not unlike the mystery of Grenfell Tower. There's enough there to make us ask questions, perhaps, or look further. So a few years ago, I decided to look further. And I'll just share with your listeners a few other snippets of information that came my way. And if anybody wants to read more, they can find more in the new book, Light Bulb Moments and Power of Critical Thinking, and also the other book, The Dark Side of Academia, How Truth is Suppressed. So here, just a few snippets, about four or five. On the 1st of September, 1666, now, this is the day before the fire broke out. It raged for four or five days. This is the day before the fire broke out. John Gaunt, who was a newly appointed trustee of what was known as the New River Company, he turned off the water supply to the reservoir in Islington that supplied water to the city. Mm. And he took the keys away with him. Like you do, right? There was no there was no water supply. So when the when the fire started raging the next day and the following three days, people had to use buckets and sort of sort of fill them from the Thames because this water supply had been shut off on the first of September. And for me, the smoking gun really is the fact that they found a piece of melted pottery in Pudding Lane. We all know about Pudding Lane, I think from our time in primary school, because we were taught that it was the baker in Pudding Lane who started the fire by failing to turn off the fires in his bakery. He swore blind that he had, so did his family, his children, who all witnessed documents. He said that he really checked everything. But anyway, that was Pudding Lane, where the baker's bakery was based. And in that same lane, they found a piece of melted pottery, which... Estimates say melted at the temperature of 1,700 degrees Celsius. Now, that is a very high temperature indeed. Normally, exactly, I could see you raising your eyes, Sarah. Normally, <laughs> yes, quite. Melt at a maximum of 
1,326 degrees Celsius, but not 1,700 degrees. So what does this tell us? This little bit of pottery, melted pottery, found in Pudding Lane. It suggests that perhaps people were interfering with the fire and expanding the fire. And I would draw your attention and your reader's attention to the fact that just two weeks before the Great Fire broke out in London, the English and their navy burnt a town in Holland called West Tertiary. And they burnt that town to the ground. And not only did they burn, the emphasis is on burning here, not only did they burn the town to the ground, but they also used fire ships to burn up to 170 Dutch merchant navy ships. What does that tell us? It tells us that the English knew a thing or two about incendiary devices. And the rest, as they say, is history. As I say, you can read more about this in the two other books. There's also an article I wrote for Off Guardian, the online newspaper, in 2019. You can find more information there. And if you do look at the Off Guardian article, then I would advise you to also look at the comments because there are many, many fascinating comments that were added to the bottom of my article. I just finally add that when the fire was over, anybody who sold unauthorised accounts of the fire were arrested. And in the following year, 1667, the Privy Council ordered the burning of some of these documents. Well, I'm sorry. I am sorry. I have a question. Oh, please. (laughs) Why would you need to suppress different accounts of what happened? If the truth is the truth, why would you need to suppress something that was obviously a lie, quote unquote? That doesn't make any sense to me. But it doesn't. It doesn't. And, you know, as I say, many decades ago, I spotted some anomalies. Isn't it interesting that Christopher Wren went on a 10-month trip abroad just a few months before the Great Fire gave his opportunity, gave him the opportunity to become an architect. And I say become an architect because he wasn't an architect. He was an astronomer and mathematician. And in fact, according to a curator who was brought in under the terms of grant to St. Paul's Cathedral to analyse the various drawings that had been produced of St. Paul, the new St. Paul's Cathedral, according to that curator, no more than 10% of all the drawings of St. Paul's Cathedral were actually produced by Wren himself. Just take that in for a moment. Wren is celebrated as the greatest architect that Britain has ever seen, with St. Paul's Cathedral as his, <laughs> his great achievement. But actually, only 10% is that, I would say, of all the drawings of St. Paul's Cathedral were produced by Wren. And even the website, well, the page on which they said it has now been taken down. But in the previous page that was on the uh, Supports Cathedral website, you can read that there's very little shading in Wren's drawings. Oh, very different his drawings from those Hawksmoor, for example, who was a very, very fine draftsman and who actually produced 50% of all of the drawings of Supports Cathedral. So anomalies, that, that was my starting point. I think that Critical thinking begins with spotting anomalies and then asking further questions. And I can give you one other example, a very brief example of what I discussed in my contribution. And it concerns a site, an ancient biblical site in Israel, where the 
famous Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s. And this site is called Qumran, spelt with a Q. And in fact, I'll be giving a talk about that for Sarah on the 14th of March, I think it is. So a quick preview. Qumran is a very famous site because, as I say, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in caves alongside this small site of Qumran. And if I tell you it's small, I do mean small. I've been there a few times. It's a magical part of the world by the Dead Sea. No signs of human civilization from the 20th century at all. It's, if you really want to get away from it all, that is the place to go to, Qumran by the Dead Sea. And when you walk around the site, you may be surprised to see that it's nothing really except 10 baths. Yep, you heard right. 10 baths, each with steps going down into them. That's it. Archaeologists have suggested that this was home to a group of reclusive and religious Jews called the Essenes, whom they say abluted themselves and prayed all day. Well, that's the official story. Now, let's bring in some critical thinking here. And one of the first anomalies you might want to ask yourself is, why does such a small site have 10 baths? For a small community, it doesn't really make much sense. That's the biggest concentration of baths in any ancient site in Israel. Secondly, there are four cemeteries around this tiny site, which was allegedly the home of a small group of reclusive Essenes. Why would you need four cemeteries? And one of the most reliable sources of that time is a historian called Josephus. Many of you would, would have heard of Josephus. Now, he speaks of the Essenes as people, most of whom, lived beyond the age of 100. They lived to a ripe old age. But actually, when they exhumed bodies from just one of these four cemeteries, they found that only 15% of the exhumed bodies were aged over 40. So most of them were very young. How is that consistent with what Josephus was telling it? Another anomaly and another question. Then... Another archaeologist came in and examined skeletons and said that the skeletons were associated with diverse occupational groups, from horsemen to laborers to scribes. Well, that's another anomaly. We thought this was home to a group of very learned religious Essenes. So how come some of the skeletons resembled the bones of horsemen and laborers? And finally, last but not least, over 70% of the bones had a substance in the bone, and it was madder, madder dye. What on earth was madder dye doing in the bones? Well, madder we know is a dye, but it's a very fast dye. Therefore, it can't leach from any clothing that people were wearing, and therefore it must have been drunk. But why would people be drinking madder, you might be asking? Well, you talked about peer review, Sarah. An article appeared in Nature magazine in the 1970s addressing this very question. Now, we all, I think, have heard of Nature magazine, which bills itself as the world's leading multidisciplinary science journal. It's up there, isn't it, in the ranks of journals, Nature. Most people would think that they'd won the lottery if they got an article published in Nature magazine. So you sit up with interest when you see an article on Madder in the Bones in Qumran, published in Nature magazine. Well, what did they conclude? The authors, the, I think three or four authors, the majority of whom were from a medical school. What they said was that the Madder was there 
to ward off evil spirits. Oh, and he said it was part of a cultural custom. Hmm. Well, I looked and I thought, well, what does matter actually contain from a pharmacological point of view, chemical point of view? What are the constituents of matter? Another question, another bit of critical thinking. But there was no answer to be found. They had never posed that question. What were the constituents of matter? So it was left to me to answer my own question. Off I went. And I went off to the British Library. And wow, what did I find? What did I find? I found that, well, in terms of ancient authors, the father of herbal medicine, so-called, was Dioscorides, Greek army doctor in the first century. So contemporary with Kuna, he waxed lyrical about the powers of matter. And so too did Pliny. Many of us may, who studied Latin at school, remember having read Pliny. Pliny wrote something called Natural History in several volumes. He was very interested in health and medicinal plants. And he described matter as a cure for jaundice, paralysis, and sciatica if the patient bathed daily with it. Ah, interesting, I thought. That might explain why there were so many baths. So maybe this wasn't just a religious place, but maybe it was a healing place. Well, the final question, what are the constituents of matter, remained to be answered. I did a bit of digging around, and I found that one of the main constituents of matter is, in fact, quinine. Yep, you heard right, it's quinine, a major constituent in hydroxychloroquine, which popped up during the COVID crisis, and a very powerful anti-malarial drug too. So there's an example of where spotting anomalies and applying critical thinking with questions takes us from position A, this was just a home for religious Essenes who were praying and ablutioning themselves in the baths all day, to a position where, well, actually, perhaps something more was happening there. Maybe this was being run as a medical health center. So critical thinking can really break through narratives and help us see the truth. I don't know if you have any thoughts at this point, Sarah. Oh, I had some flashbacks to another book from the publisher, Truth University Press, the one you mentioned earlier, actually, The Dark Side of Academia, How Truth is Suppressed, where they talk about the authorship of William Shakespeare's plays. Now, there's an awful lot of people who believe firmly that Shakespeare wrote all of those plays. Was it 38 or something like that? It's a lot. It's, an, it's a huge body of work. Yeah. 30-something. I think it's 38, if memory serves correct. That is a lot for any playwright. And especially given he didn't have a word processor to kind of <laughs> help out, you know. Well, rewrites are notorious in the playwriting industry. If you write plays, it's not like writing a novel where you might do a few drafts. Writing a play is torturous. And it's often said that plays are wrought, not written, which is why playwright is written with the W-R-I-G-H-T rather um, than W-R-I-T-E because plays are wrought, they are not written. And it's very stressful, particularly when you're in rehearsals with the actors as Shakespeare, quote-unquote, was supposed to have been. It seems very bizarre to me that a peasant whose daughter was illiterate, let me just say that again, a peasant whose daughter was illiterate supposedly wrote 38 of the greatest plays ever written in the history of mankind, certainly in English. Now, if you're a father who is obviously extremely literate, writing beautiful prose, some of the best poetry in the English language, you've basically 
if not invented iambic pentameter, certainly mastered it. How come you didn't bother to teach your daughter to read <laughs> Bertie comes to tea, Bertie the bear wants to eat grandma? Like, I don't understand like why people would think that is normal, or at least not even question it. Mm. I don't understand how you can just blindly presume that given these facts that, you know, Shakespeare wrote all of those plays. And one of my biggest problems, and I sort of knew this before I read one of the publisher's books, The Dark Side of Academia from Truth University Press, I couldn't understand why people believe that a peasant would know so much about the intricacies of the court, the court of the king or the court of the queen. I didn't understand how he would have so much knowledge of being in the court. I just couldn't... Writers don't write about things out of their imagination. That's a myth. Writers write about that which they know. If you're a writer, you write about what you know. Because if you don't, it'll not go anywhere because it will ring untrue. People who do know about the kinds of things you're writing about will see this rubbish straight away. And other people, it doesn't quite click with them. It doesn't feel true. It doesn't... I believe that truth vibrates. So if you're telling pork pies, most people will realise you're telling pork pies, all things being equal. So I, don't, I just... I find it very difficult to understand why people just assume that, oh yes, Shakespeare wrote these plays... His daughter was a literate, but never mind. He was a peasant, writes about kings and queens a lot, never mind. Like, there's too many never minds. Why is there not? What is it that stops people from asking, hang on a minute, even putting their hand up and saying, excuse me, why wouldn't you teach your daughter to read? What is it about people that don't do that or think to do that? I think this is the most astonishing anomaly that you've brought before us. This is the Shakespeare. William Shakespeare's daughter was illiterate. And of course, there are many others, for example, um, he doesn't mention his plays and his will. But he mentions his plays. Oh, bed. goodness, I forgot about that. Yes. That's the bigger his, one. His plays. <laughs> the, the only <laughs> assets he probably had. The, 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 the most important assets, the, the most valuable assets in the history of probably English literature. <laughs> you know, maybe E.L. James would have something to say about that. Although, if I was being spiteful, I might say that's not literature. But J.K. Rowling, maybe. But. <laughs> yeah, that's something else. I think I read that in that book as well. But yeah, you, you've reminded me. Yeah, of course. Like, oh, I just forgot about them in my will, my last will and testament. Yeah, sure you did. Sure you did. I just don't get it. How do people not ask these questions? Well, how do people not get it? This is a brilliant question. And one of the things that this new book does, The Power of Light Bulb Moments and The Power of Critical Thinking, is look at the multiple obstacles that stand in the way of people actually exercising critical thinking. And so we could turn to that now before we look at some of the tools to help us develop even further our powers of critical thinking. So in terms of obstacles, Catherine and I really suggest that the system has worked extremely hard to shut down people's ability to think independently and critically. And they've shut people's capacity to critical thinking down using both psychological and or physical techniques. And the psychological techniques essentially exploit human, the human tendency to conform. And the physical techniques target very directly the brain and shut down the critical thinking faculties of the brain. And I don't know if listeners will be surprised to hear that the physical techniques used to shut down the brain include television, include fear. And I'll go into those in a moment. But if we just start with the impetus to shut down critical thinking. Well, we mentioned Socrates earlier, who was a very wise man and tried to ignite the critical thinking of the youth of Athens by asking questions. 
when it wasn't long before he received the death sentence, was forced to take hemlock. We all know that. Clearly, having a population of thinking people isn't necessarily what a lot of governments want, <laughs> because it's control that they like, and I can see Sarah smiling there in agreement. So quite apart from Athens, who wanted to shut down Socrates, Frederick the Great of Prussia, a great warmonger, he loved yes. wars, he stated as follows that if my soldiers were to begin to think, not one of them would remain in the army. So, of course, encouraging thinking in the Prussian population was very far down his list of priorities. And Henry Ford said something very similar. Many of you will be familiar with this, these words of his. He said that if people were to understand the banking and monetary system, quotes, there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. So best that people are kept in ignorance with critical thinking a million miles away from the education system. And before we came on air, Sarah, you were telling me about Rockefeller back in 1903, I think it was. Do you want to say a bit about that? Oh, uh, only that he's quoted as having said that I don't want a nation of thinkers, I want a nation of workers, which is perfectly fine if you're a business tycoon or some sort of factory master. But hang on a minute, if you're setting up the Board of Education <laughs> You're going to be in charge of education in the United States of America. Shouldn't that be the other way around? Shouldn't we have somebody who's deeply concerned with thinking rather than being a worker bee in a factory? I think it's disgraceful that he was allowed to do that. And if that quote is accurate, and it's quoted a lot, if that is correct, and I have no reason to believe it isn't, I cannot believe that people sat around and just let that happen. Where were the academics? Where were the philosophers? Where were the people who cared about humanity and the future of independent thought? critical thinking, and so on and so forth. I just cannot understand his sweatshop dream, isn't it, rather than... It's more of the same. It's more of the Athenians shutting down Socrates, Frederick the Great, Ford. Now, what about the UK today? Are we living in very different times? Well, my understanding is that if we look at the national curriculum in the UK, the phrase critical thinking only occurs in three places. That's all. In respect of arsenal design, citizenship, and history, I believe. Otherwise, it has no place at all in the UK's national curriculum. And so perhaps not surprisingly, we find that in an OECD study carried out extremely recently, August last year, this was a very, very extensive study of 800,000 graduates from across six countries, one of which was the UK, another the US. They were, this, this study, I shouldn't laugh really, it was looking at the extent to which graduates had this skill of critical thinking or not. And what they concluded in August last year was that only 45% of graduates actually demonstrated critical thinking skills. In other words, fewer than half of all graduates had critical thinking skills. They found that the learning gain, as they put it, between people at the beginning and the end of their graduate studies was very small, almost no gain in critical thinking skills. And they also found that people who did practical courses, business studies, for example, were much less likely to gain critical thinking skills. And those are the very areas, of course, that the British government is pushing people into, STEM subjects. They showed a lower increase in critical thinking skills than did people who studied humanities. So many, many important and interesting findings there, which perhaps help us understand what led Einstein to say, and I'm quoting him here, it is a miracle 
that curiosity survives for education. Yeah, I can't remember where I last read that, but it was something that I've consumed either from Truth University Press or directly from you because I didn't realise he said that. And I just thought, oh, wow, thank you. Thank you. That's what I've been trying to tell everybody. No one wants to listen to me, but maybe they will listen to Einstein, right? So, yeah, absolutely. And it's like they beat the curiosity out of you. They stop you. Oh, don't be so silly. Stop asking questions. Don't be so silly, Sarah. Silly question. Well, hang on a minute. Why can't you explain why Shakespeare's daughter was illiterate and why he didn't mention the small matter of his 38 plays in his will? This, I'm sorry, sir, miss, there's something wrong here. Can we just talk about this? That Whilst I try to have empathy for people who just accept things at face value, I find it extraordinarily difficult because even just using your own life experience, maybe as a mother or as a father, why wouldn't you want to give your child the great gift of literacy, particularly in a time where an awful lot of people were illiterate? If you happen to have such great literacy as a peasant in Warwickshire and you were so literate you wrote these wonderful plays, why not share that? Why wouldn't you share it with your nearest and dearest? I cannot fathom it. I just, it's not logical. To me, there's no logic there. That's not what you would do as a human being. Who wouldn't want their children to have literacy if they had that themselves? Maybe a lot of the time, parents don't know what's going on in the classroom. And so they can't really complain (laughs) because they don't know. But anyway, so we find that governments over time have not exactly necessarily encouraged critical thinking in the population. And then, as I said, there are two techniques for making it difficult making the act of critical thinking rather difficult. And there are a whole panoply of psychological techniques on the one hand, and then there are a range of physical techniques on the other. So shall I go through some of the psychological techniques, which we might actually notice in what's going on in the last few years, for example. And I don't know how many listeners are familiar with the really interesting research that was done in Turkey and America on conformity. It goes right back to 1935 and right through to the 1970s. I I just sketched some landmark studies, I think. One in 1951 by Solomon Ash, and a fascinating one, this one. Ash put up on a board three lines. They were presented vertically, and they were very obviously, I would say, different in length, these three lines. And the People taking part in the experiment were asked to indicate which of the three lines was different in length to the others. It was pretty obvious which one it was. And so when people were left on their own to make this decision, 99% of the time, those people got the answer correct. However, this is where the study comes in. The individuals who were called on to answer were put in groups of confederates, shall we say, who were primed to give the wrong answer. Okay. And when that lone individual who was not primed was then called upon to indicate which line was different in length from the others, the 99% correct answer dropped dramatically. And 75% of those people registered the wrong answer. That shows dramatically the effect that being amongst other people giving a different answer can have an effect. It shows dramatically how people can change their response depending on the people around them. And there are many permutations to this experiment, but when Ash, interestingly, added just one confederate who gave the right answer, as opposed to 
just a single confederate giving the wrong answer. No, when Ash added somebody giving the right answer, the error rate dropped down to 10%. So what that is showing us is that if we feel bolstered in our opinion by other people, then we're less likely to be swayed by a different point of view. And maybe this is one reason why debate is not encouraged, that what we've seen over several years now is the presentation of a single point of view, a so-called expert point of view. But it's very rarely balanced with an opposing point of view. And maybe there's a reason for that. Moving on swiftly to another really fascinating experiment, which many, many people know, because I think it featured in a film. And it was carried out by Milgram, Stanley Milgram, who was at Yale University in 1961. And as many of you know, subjects were recruited into this study and were told that it was a study about learning. And they were told that electric shock would be administered to them by a fellow member of the team and the electric shock would be administered if they made an incorrect, correct answer. And all the while, an expert is standing there in a white coat, edging on the people, validating the giving of the electric shock. What were the results? And these were just people pulled off the street, both the people giving the answers and also people administering the electric shock. And incidentally, it wasn't real electric shock, in case you're worried about it. It was on a pretense of, and there were actors shrieking and so on, giving the semblance of being badly injured by the electric shock. What were the results? What we found was that 65% of the respondents had the maximum level of shock administered to them by their colleagues. Yeah, their colleagues were happy to go on administering the electric shock purely because there was an expert in a white coat standing by authorising it. So that's another manifestation. I was only following orders. Mm-hmm. The worst excuse in the history of time, right? I was only following orders. Exactly. And that was actually why Milgram undertook the experiment. He wanted to Quite. understand this impulse on the part of people to follow orders. Now, if you think that's bad, that 65% of these innocent subjects were happy to administer maximum levels of what they thought was genuine. Lethal electric shocks. <laughs> but wasn't in reality. A very recent experiment in Poland from 2017 achieved 90% compliance. Oh, yes. So it seems that there is a tendency amongst many people to conform, to do as others are doing, not to rock the boat, to follow the advice of experts. And how often have we used that? How often have we heard that word expert in recent years? Expert group of scientists. We know from Milgram's experiment that the power an expert has over other people is absolutely immense. And some people might think that an understanding of the human tendency to conformity has actually informed some of what's happened in recent years, that people may have exploited what we understand about people's tendency to conformity. But whatever you might think on that rather contentious point, we do know that humans have a very strong conformist tendency. And therefore, for people to critically think and distance themselves from the herd is really quite a heroic act because of this extremely strong tendency to conformity. And 
so strong is it that the Frankfurt School back in the 1920s in Germany, they had a vision of creating a socialist society. And they thought that for as long as people believed that the problems of society could be solved by reason, they would never be able to change society in the direction that they wanted. So they consciously attacked the exercise of reason and critical thinking. This is the Frankfurt School. And according to one of the contributors to the new book, Light Valve Moments and the Power of Critical Thinking, and this is Dr. Niall McRae, who for many years taught mental health at King's College London. According to him, the twin effect of the Frankfurt School and the influence of Mao's China together produced the woke agenda, which, according to his contribution, was the woke agenda was of itself an attempt to shut down critical thinking. And he talks about the foundation stones of Mao's China as being getting rid, the act of getting rid of the four olds, O-L-D-S. And those four olds were old ideas, old cultures, old customs, and old habits. And could it be that one of those old habits that both Mao's China brought to Britain and the Frankfurt School, combined effect of the two, could it be that one of those old habits that had to be got rid of was this habit of critical thinking? And could it be that if we can revive critical thinking, that we can actually turn the clock back and take us back to a time when we didn't have a woke agenda and when people were not restricted in what they could say, but could actually openly debate and use critical thinking in the way that Sarah and I have today talking about Shakespeare and the power of London. Could we perhaps turn the clock back and see a, a renaissance of critical thinking? That this is one of the reasons why this book was needed, we, we feel, at this time, because we're in a very critical period of history. For so sure. Those are some of the psychological factors that he used. It wouldn't be fair to finish on psychological factors without talking about what's called the illusory truth effect, which is basically the repetition of ideas in order to instill a set of ideas into people. And many know the words of Goebbels from Nazi Germany, that if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes true. And so we find that technique used in advertising, and <laughs> we find it also used in other spheres too, I think, don't we, Sarah? What, like safe and effective? Boom. Safe and effective is the ultimate for me. When I hear Goebbels and that quote, I just think, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. Oh, is that the safe and effective that is suddenly and unexpectedly? Is that the one that's linked to suddenly and unexpectedly? That's safe and effective, I see. I see. Yes, I see. So it was Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, the so-called father of public relations, who coined the phrase the engineering of consent. And this repetition of lies, in many cases, that repetition can force consent, can force a particular viewpoint on people. And that will stop the exercise of critical thinking. To force consent's an oxymoron, isn't it? How can you force consent? Yes. Like that in itself. It's, it's like, hang on a minute, wait a second, wait a second. So my, it's a Jedi mind trick, isn't it? Like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, crazy, isn't it? Crazy. As Goebbels said, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes truth. For many, not for all. The challenge is to preserve one's ability to think critically 
in the midst of these psychological techniques, shall we say. And of course, the propaganda is one of the tools emanating from that. Is there a connection between propaganda and the media? Uh, maybe that's a subject for another time, a big one. But we do know that in the US, 90% of the media is controlled by six, just six media conglomerates. And it's even worse in the UK, where 90% of newspaper media is controlled by just three organizations. The Daily Mail Group, Reach PLC, which is the Express, and News UK, which of course is Murdoch. And The Sun, with its 36 million readers, is it? Some stupendous number. Oh, did you say readers? Are they just comic perusers? (laughs) Sorry, but for goodness sake, because if The Sun is to be read, like it's a joke, isn't it? Come on. Come on, guys. It's not to do with politics. Just look at the language. Yes, I don't know what the reading age of the sun is. Is it about nine or ten? Nine or years old. I think it's nine years old. Yeah, I think we both yes. said nine there. Yeah, I think it's about nine years old. Come on, guys, that's, that is not for grown-ups. That's a comic. That is a comic. Sorry, do your homework. That's not good enough. If you're reading this one, well, no, no one listening to this is reading the sun. I promise you. Maybe for the horse racing tips, I hear it's good for that. But for goodness' sake, I don't think anyone actually would pretend to be reading the sun. Certainly, no one here would admit to that. It's a comic. It's a comic for, uh, how do you put that? Uh, Children in the body of an adult, I would say. I'm sorry, it's not good enough, really, isn't it? There's a modern commentator called Burroughs that we cite in the Lightbulbs book who likens much education state to propaganda, (laughs) which is rather shocking. Burroughs states that propaganda is delivered by education systems as knowledge to serve the technocratic tyranny. Now, if Burroughs is correct, of course, that doesn't make space for critical thinking. Not a good show. But just to finish, finally, on obstacles, that we have the physical obstacles. Very quickly, run through these. Back in the 18th century, Edmund Burke, who wrote about the French Revolution, he wrote that, this is fascinating, about the role of fear to shut down critical thinking. Burke said that no passion so effectively robs the mind of all its powers of acting and reasoning as fear. I'll just say that again because it's so powerful what Edmund Burke said. No passion so effectively robs the mind of all its powers of acting and reasoning as fear. And it's only recently, actually, in 2016, at Pittsburgh University, to be precise, that we've actually got the science now to back up what Edmund Burke was saying. Because this study at Pittsburgh University found that anxiety or fear disrupts brain neurons in the prefrontal cortex of the brain that are critical to making rational decisions. Is that not extraordinary? That fear shuts down those neurons that permit critical thinking. And television, television, (laughs) seems to have a similar effect. And we all know that was invented by Logie Baird, Scottish Logie Baird in 1924. And interestingly, the first image that was transmitted on his television set was the Maltese cross, which some people might say was a sort of symbol of certain groups and therefore a symbol that certain groups might be interested in television as a tool of communication. Anyway, I was astonished to find, to come three pieces of research that lay bare the physical effects of watching television which I guess many of the people listening here don't do anymore. But 
please pass on this information to people you know who still watch television. In 1969, uh, all this research was done in the US. Mulholland found that watching TV actually produces alpha waves in the brain. And alpha waves are produced when somebody is in a hypnotic state. So it makes them highly suggestible. Of course, the minute advertisers found out about this, they rushed to, to advertise on TV, which would produce these alpha waves. And not just that, but in just two years later, in 1971, Professor Krugman with a K, he showed that people's right hemisphere became twice as active as the left hemisphere while people were watching TV. The right hemisphere became twice as active as the left hemisphere while people were watching TV, which meant that second route to shutting down critical thinking, because the right hemisphere is where information is processed uncritically. It's processed critically in only the left hemisphere. So this means that people watch TV emotionally and not intelligently. And moreover, this crossover from the left to the right hemisphere, wait for this, it produces endorphins. Endorphin. Endorphin. I can't say that word. Um, endorphins, like a rush. That's it, uh, a rush. Like, like the rush you get when you play sport or you score a goal or something. That's it. A rush. Endorphins, a rush. Yeah. Which are identical to the rush you get when people take opium and its derivatives such as morphine or heroin. They all act on the same receptor sites, whether it's TV, whether it's opium, whether it's heroin. And as if that's not bad enough, finally, Jacobi in 2000, he found that the higher brain regions are actually shut down when people watch TV. And when people watch TV, according to Jacobi, activity switches to the reptilian part of the brain. And this isn't a good news story, I'm afraid. The movement to the reptilian part of the brain, according to Jacobi, produces brain atrophy. So you might say that producing televisually presented information is a stroke of genius for any governmental authorities that might wish to influence their populations. But of course, we all have the power to switch it off. I could imagine that many of your listeners have done that a long time ago, Sarah. For sure. So there are many, many obstacles to thinking critically. So those that manage to survive, get through all those obstacles, are nothing short of heroes. And in the book, we present 24 first-person accounts of people's questioning journeys. And one of the things that Catherine and I did with these journeys was to look at the triggers. What is it that triggers these remarkable people to keep thinking critically, despite all of these many obstacles? And here's what we found. It's a very short list, really. Some of these trigger factors came from a survey that I ran online on Truth University, and I think you might have contributed to that, Sarah. And we had 74 respondents, which is a decent number. One of the questions posed was, what are the factors that cause you to ask questions? And what came back were the following factors. These were the factors that were most commonly cited by these 74 people. And here they are. Autonomy, curiosity, distrust of authority, placing a premium on the truth, a high sense of morality, seeing the big picture, Willingness to change one's mind. That's a very interesting one. A sense of justice, high intelligence, and last but by no means least, 
a high interest in history. And so it seems that these are the very special faculties that can cause people to turn their back on all those obstacles that they talked about, whether they are psychological obstacles or physical obstacles. Some or all of those characteristics will help people confront the truth with critical thinking. And I'll just give you one example from one of our contributors, and this is the historian John Hamer. He's written magnificent books, including The Falsification of History. And he says in his contribution, and I nearly jumped off my chair when I read this, he said that his interest, his curiosity, was ignited by the death of Princess Diana and the fact that he had friends in France who reported that they had seen footage of Diana walking into an ambulance after the car crash. Wow! Well, life was never the same again for him after he, he'd heard that from his friends in France. And then he learned that three of the greatest opponents to the establishment of the Federal Reserve early on in the 20th century, that's Astor Guggenheim and Isidore Strauss, three of the most staunch opponents to the establishment of the Federal Reserve, were all on the Titanic ship when it sunk. They were all in first-class berths, and they were amongst the tiny 5% of the first-class passengers who died. The remaining 95% of the first-class passengers survived. Well, that was a big anomaly for John. A hell of a coincidence, isn't it? A hell of a series of coincidences. Does that make them coincide? I don't know. What a coincidence. What a coincidence that those three gentlemen all happened to perish, despite the fact that 95% of the other passengers in first class got off. And it was quite possibly the Olympia rather than the Titanic. But I, I think that's a story for another day. As I understand it, the Olympia was resprayed as the Titanic because the Olympia had sustained serious damages and there was some sort of insurance scandal where the insurers wouldn't pay out. And so therefore, it's alleged that the Olympia was resprayed as the Titanic. And well, some sort of disaster, I think, was perhaps manufactured in order to get an insurance payout. And just as another little Brucey bonus for the evil ones, we lost those three gentlemen who were opposed valiantly, bravely and correctly the creation of the Federal Reserve. What a coincidence, oh. they might say, right? What, what a coincidence. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Or should we say anomaly? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Because then I don't get to call them coincidence theorists, which is what they are. <laughs> if you believe the newspapers, sir or madam, you are a coincidence theorist. And I would far rather be a conspiracy theorist than a coincidence theorist. Why? Because I love mathematics. Or better still, be a critical thinker. Quite. Same thing. It is the same thing. So... If you hear somebody accusing somebody else of being a conspiracy theorist, just say, no, they're just being a critical thinker. <laughs> Lovely. Like Lovely. Einstein, like Socrates, like Descartes. Outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. When you were talking earlier, I heard about the level of compliance, that Polish study getting 90% compliance. What? That is, that is an outrage. I almost can't believe how high that, that percentage has crept particularly since previous studies that were done in the States. But this whole thing about being a nice person, I don't call it being a nice person. I call it being a compliant person. Nice. If you're described as a nice person, it's compliance. You're complying with other people. That's why you're perceived as nice. So I think we should. you shouldn't want to be a nice person. You should want to be a good person. 
be a good person. Do not be a nice person. We don't want nice. Nice is just a cozy word for compliant. And well, we all know where too much compliance can lead you. So for me, out with the nice and in with the good. Being a good person is not easy. Being a good person is difficult, but it's got to be better than being nice. What else did I have? I always have so many questions that I completely didn't know anything about that Polish study. So thank you very much for sharing it with us. Just out of curiosity, have you read a book called The TV Delusion? No, tell me about it. Now that's funny. The only reason I asked you on air is because you've quoted two of the studies today, and I didn't, know, I didn't know that you were going to, that were studied in the book The TV Delusion by Simon Day and Joanna van der Leer. And it was the Ash study and the Milgram experiment. And the first time I came across both of those experiments was at the Open Mind Conference in 2015 in Copenhagen. And that's where Simon Day and Joanna van der Leer gave a presentation where they showed the Milgram experiment and talked about the Ash experiment. And I then bought a copy of the, their book, The TV Delusion, which I then read. And since, you know, I'm pleased to say I've become friends, but it's very interesting that you're talking about critical thinking and the negative menace or malice that is the television. Many of the things and the things you talked about today, if I didn't know better, I'd have thought you were, you know, you'd read The TV Delusion and were almost quoting it. But of course, there you go. I asked you on air, you haven't read it. There you go. Very, very interesting that you drawn the same conclusions as these other critical thinkers that wrote the TV delusion. Professor Moss, is there anything we've missed? Is there anything else that we should clean up on this really important topic of critical thinking? Well, the only remaining thing I'd say is that we talked about some of the factors that can trigger critical thinking in the face of all the obstacles. And we said that the people who can survive all those obstacles and still think critically are nothing short of heroic. Well, that put Catherine and I in mind of (laughs) the heroes of three landmark pieces of fiction. One, of course, being Winston Smith in 1984, who withstands all the propaganda of Oceania in order to still keep his mind and assert that two plus two equals four, rather than five, as the society would have everybody believe. And the other two novels being Brave New World, with Bernard Manx as the hero of that one, and Fahrenheit 451 as the third landmark novel. And what we actually did was compare these trigger factors that we found influenced the 70 people who responded to the survey online, you remember that one, and compared the trigger factors that affected them, as well as our 24 people, we found a very good correlation there. But we also, just as as an exercise to start with, compared the trigger factors that ignited the thinking of the heroes of these three landmark novels. In other words, Winston Smith of 1984, Bernard Marx of Brave New World, and Guy Montag of Fahrenheit 451. And lo and behold, we found that the same set of factors triggered their awakening as well. So, for example, curiosity. If we think of Winston Smith, he, anybody who's not read the novel, this features a man who's living in a dystopian society controlled by Big Brother, which forces compliance on every level you could possibly imagine and doesn't permit any real understanding of history at all. In fact, Winston Smith's job is to alter history on a continual basis. Well, Winston Smith makes a point of seeking out the trolls, that's the 
generality of people. And talking to an old man, because he hopes that by talking to the old man, he will get to understand what the past was really like. And that's surely his curiosity coming through. Winston Smith's curiosity. And by analogy, Guy Montag, the hero of Fahrenheit 451, which is set in a dystopian society where the fire service is systematically going from house to house, burning every book that they can get their hands of. One of the firemen, Guy Montag, his critical thinking starts to kick in after he meets a young girl called Clarisse. And he makes a point of visiting English professor Faber to gain more understanding about books and his recurrent thoughts. Well, that's another example of curiosity. And little by little, Guy Montag, the hero of Fahrenheit 451, comes to increasingly distrust authority to the point that he goes to great pains to preserve the books that he actually has in his own home. And that brings about a sense of autonomy. Eventually, he leaves his job, leaves the city. And right at the end, he is able to perceive the big picture. He escapes from the city where he worked as a farmer, and he joins a group of free thinkers, critical thinkers, shall we say. And one of those critical thinkers was called Granger. He tells them the story of the phoenix that rises from its ashes to start a new life. And that is a symbol for Guy, the ex-fireman, to pursue a new life ahead of him. And I think it's a very fishing metaphor analogy for us here today, that out of some of the pseudo-reality that many of us have lived in, we can, using the power of critical thinking, envisage a new life. We can perhaps imagine that new life coming into being. And I know you're doing so much, Sarah, to bring that new life into being with everything that you're doing with education. Thank you. It's an enormous responsibility, one I take very, very seriously. Certainly couldn't do it without the likes of yourself and significant others that are also on the same path. And it's fascinating that you've cited 1984 there in particular, because recently that was listed on one of the potential terrorist books list by the UK government's Prevent organisation, supposedly prevents terrorism, hilarious. There's no evidence they've ever prevented any individual act of quote-unquote terrorism ever. But George Orwell's 1984 is on the list. The only reason I know this is because Douglas Murray was kicking off because his book, The Strange Death of Europe, also made the list. So on the one hand, he was delighted to be on the same list as George Orwell, and on the other hand, was absolutely furious that Prevent, something that is an organisation endorsed, and I think funded by the UK government, to prevent quote-unquote terrorism, has listed such books as potential books for those who would be terrorists. Can you imagine, even, even George Orwell would, no. wouldn't have imagined such a thing. And I, I thought it was hilarious that at the start of the session, you were talking about why the government don't want critical thinkers. And at the end of the session, you've wound up talking about a book, which I don't think you knew until now, was on the prevent list as, quote unquote, a potential piece of terrorism. What does that say to you? What does that say? I'm rendered speechless. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's astonishing. But perhaps not so astonishing. Because Winston Smith is a role model. He shows us how, in the face of a highly controlling society, you can hang on to your critical thinking and your individuality. So surprising, perhaps and perhaps not so surprising. Unbelievable. I've said so many times I need to come up with a different word because it's not unbelievable. 
Mm. If you done your reading, it's exactly what they told us was going to happen. It just depends what kind of view you take on good literature, right? Like, <laughs> is it just for fun or are they warning us? I think the answers have already been presented to us very clearly, mm. have they not, over the last two or three years in particular? Which also shows the power of critical thinking and the fear mm-hmm. that can arouse in authorities that may wish to control society. So it, yeah. should, it does point a very powerful way forward, I think, for everybody, that we can reignite the power of critical thinking, which has been celebrated, as we said, from the time of Socrates, through Descartes, through Jung, through Einstein. It's a tremendously powerful weapon that we have at our disposal. And urge your listeners to read this book, Light Bulb Moments and the Power of Critical Thinking, if only to read the wonderful 24 contributions that sit in the middle of this book, because each of those contributions describes somebody's thought journey on life. And many people started out on a conventional route, and then just through the act of asking questions as we've done today, Sarah, and spotting anomalies, they found themselves moving onto a different track. So they're very life-enhancing accounts that cover a very wide range of topics. And, and we can learn a lot, I think, from these 24 people about law and order, money, the money system. What is the real reason why the Dutch government wants to close down 20% of farms in Holland? History, we can learn a lot about history. Yes, and it's a book that has been written for a very mixed audience. I do want to just finish with this point. It's a book that we hope would sit easy with people who have been on this thinking journey for a long time. But equally, it would sit well with people who've not started off on that journey. And there is nothing, I think, in the book that will put anybody off who has not yet started down that road. The word awake never occurs, for example. The book doesn't pass judgment on the views of the 24 people. In fact, the 24 contributions are treated as a data set from which we can deduce the main trigger points to hanging on to creative thinking. The sort of trigger points we mentioned, like curiosity, autonomy, distrust of authority, an innate sense of justice. So yes, if you have friends and family who you think might benefit from starting down that journey of questioning, then you can very safely give this book to them. We worked hard to make this book acceptable to an audience such as that, as well as to an audience of people who, as I say, are well ahead on this road themselves. I must say that was very delicately put. Well done. <laughs> I would just say, give this to your sheep or friend. It might wake them up. But that's a little too but, crude. And I think you put it beautifully and rather better than I would have. Well done. I have only one final point to make, which is a really inspiring thing. And I thank you very much for bringing this book to everyone's attention. Because in the Ash experiment, I think you mentioned it only took one other person to agree with the true height of that line in order to make the real subject of the experiment have the courage of their convictions to also say, yes, that is the correct. This line is the shortest line or this line is the longest line. And that's inspiring. And it also is, kind of reflects Matthias Desmet's work, the psychologist. He's sort of misquoted as making up the phrase mass formation psychosis, which is not actually quite correct. And he corrects people on that all the time. But that's where he shot to fame quite recently with his mass formation psychosis. It's actually mass psychosis. But anyway, it's been called mass formation psychosis. But his key thrust, his main point, is that so long as we are speaking out, so long as you speak out, it will be enough to prevent 
genocide, democide, whatever you want to call it. As long as you speak the truth, as long as there is one person speaking up, that will always encourage the other person who's on the fence. It will always back up the other person who's thinking, actually, this doesn't look quite right. And it just reminds me so much of that ash experiment where if there's just one person else that's also saying the same things as you're thinking, you're more inclined to trust yourself. You just need one other person to help you. Right. And I think as lot you know, those 24 people who have shared those stories in the book is absolutely wonderful, very inspiring. So if you're speaking your truth quietly and clearly, I think that's from Desiderata, speak your truth quietly and clearly and listen to others, even the dull and ignorant, they too have their story. As long as you're speaking your truth quietly and clearly, you're doing your bit, you're doing your thing, and it should save us from hopefully any more horrific tyranny like that which we've experienced over these last three years. And is there anything else you'd like to add? And if not, uh, do let us know where we can uh, find you, find your book. The book can be bought directly from Truth University Press at infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com. So that's all one word, infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com. Or you could buy it direct from Amazon if you're so inclined. But we'd recommend going direct to infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com. And there is only one other thing I'd mention, which is, yes, Matthias Desmet's work is absolutely fascinating. And I think we've got something to add to what he said about this mass psychosis in terms of personality type. because. For the first time we present in the book our findings concerning the influence that personality might have on people's readiness to see an alternative reality, alternative to the reality presented to us on an everyday basis. And I administered the world's most widely used psychometric test, the Myers-Briggs type test, to people attending uh, one of the conferences I organize each year which is called Questioning Science. And incidentally, if you're interested in that, the next one is coming up on the 28th to the 30th of July. And if you're interested in finding out about that, you can use the same email, if you like, infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com. And so we administered this personality test. And I had a hunch as to what might come out, but I couldn't possibly have guessed how strong the results would be. And they were really extraordinary findings. I say so myself. I can go into the details of the psychometric test, which is a wonderful psychometric test, the Myers-Briggs type inventory. It measures four pairs of opposites, which are identified by Jung, actually. We talked about him earlier on, didn't we, Sarah, today? But if we just focus on one of those pairs, Jung distinguished between two ways of perceiving the world. And one way is through your five senses. So those people for whom reality is principally the reality delivered by the five senses, they're called the sensing types. No surprises there. The opposing type has a very misleading term. So I'm berating Jung at this point, I suppose. It's not a helpful term. So bear that in mind when I tell you the name. It's uh, the term, I should say. It's intuitive type. That doesn't mean intuition. Okay. The intuitive type, as described by Jung, is the type for the reality... It's not the world brought to them by their five senses. No, it's the reality that lies beyond the five senses. It's the whole world of possibilities. It's the relationship between one bit of data and another bit of data. That is the world perceived by Jung's intuitive type and is measured by the Myers-Briggs. Okay, so what results did I get? 
when I administered the Myers-Briggs type to people attending the questioning seance and stand in the park events. So these are all people who are questioning types, people questioning the world as it's delivered to us on an everyday basis by the media. Well, here are the results. Out of 85 respondents, quite a decent number, 93% were the so-called intuitive type. Only 7% were the sensing type. That shows that predominantly the questioning type is an intuitive type. The person who sees beyond the five sense reality and perceives the world of possibilities. So the next question you might be asking, and we'll end at this point, is how are intuitive and sensing types represented in the population at large? Well, that's a really interesting question. So I went ahead and dug out some data, and my goodness, was it exciting. What it revealed was that in the UK, 37% of the population only are intuitive types. And if you do a quick bit of arithmetic, that will leave you the percentage of sensing types, which is what, 73%? Sorry, 63% of the British population are sensing and 37% are intuitive. So it's about one-thirds, two-thirds, isn't it, the proportions in UK. Now, if you switch to France, where Sarah's based, the figures are even more dramatic. According to the data that I got from the MBTI manual supplements, only 23% or 24% if we round up of the French population are intuitive types. That's astonishingly low. In Germany, it's 26% intuitive only. In Italy, it's 24%. Uh, where else can we go? In the US, you might be wondering about the US, it's 32% only intuitive. Now, where I nearly jumped out of my chair was when I saw the figures for Russian. The proportion of intuitives, according to the MBTI manual supplements for Russia, is 45%. So approaching the halfway mark in the Russian population. And so I think, what can we say about those figures? That I think we need to be patient with the sensing types who may struggle, perhaps more than the intuitive types, to perceive the world of possibilities. But I do think that the technique of questioning and anomalies is something that would work for sensing types just as much as for intuitive types. My goodness me, I hope you are right. I really do. And isn't it fascinating that Russia is always portrayed as the bad guy these days and that their population has a 45% intuitive type? Hmm. Is that a coincidence, Professor Moss? Perhaps. I don't know. But it's a very it's enough to make me interested, let's put it that way. <laughs> so that was the only thing I wanted to add, the context of personality, which hasn't really been considered at all before. And I do think that the media, assuming they're aware of these figures, or why shouldn't they be aware? They're published figures. I just gathered them together for the first time in this book. If the media are aware that the majority of most populations Russia apart are sensing types, then, of course, the media is perfectly placed to beam wonderful images at people which will have wide appeal to their five senses, or at least one, two of their senses, auditory and visual senses. And so the challenge really is how do we bring round the sensing type when we're not yet in charge of the TV stations and the media, Sarah? <laughs> I have the answer. It goes like this. 
considering the state gets its power from schooling and that the people get their power from education, I would suggest that it's time to home educate your children. And of course, I would say that I'm a huge advocate of it and I will never shut up about it. But I am of the firm belief your child can either be educated or schooled. And these things are now mutually exclusive. Closing thoughts? Lovely note on which to end. And an absolutely vitally important message. Education has the power to transform thinking. Absolutely. For sure. Guys, you can find more information at truthuniversity.co.uk. That's truthuniversity.co.uk. And if you wish to purchase books and or find out about interesting conferences, that's infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com. Infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com. And as ever, the links will be in the description. Professor Moss, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sarah. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.